message this morning is the fourth in a series on difficult questions. And we will deal with homosexuality this morning. My text is found in Romans chapter 1, two verses. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves the recompense of their error which was meet. Since the Dade County referendum in Florida, the gay rights movement has become a popular crusade in our country. We are interested in whether or not the homosexual is to have the rights of others, and one of the representatives of Congress has introduced a bill to that effect. He equates their rights with that of the black and of the female. Now the question that arises is not whether it is a lonely position, a wrong position, or a perverse position to be black or female. Everyone knows that that is not the case. Is it, however, the case when it comes to homosexuality? Is there a moral issue involved in addition to a matter of rights? And are we, in fact, examining what ought to be a moral or a psychological issue rather than a civil rights issue? Do we want the gay person in our classroom modeling for our children a way of life? For these would be teachers who have announced their identity and who are avowed practitioners. We Christians cannot bury our heads and ask the problem to go away. You are all going to be called upon sooner or later to vote on this matter. And the question is, how do you feel about it as a Christian? What ought your position to be? Now, before we get into the subject matter, I would like to make a few observations. In the first place, we heterosexuals do not understand what it is to be a homosexual. What is it like to have a deep attraction for persons of the same sex? What does it mean really to be subject to that inner force that somehow makes one of the same sex so attractive to you that you are totally disinterested in one of the opposite sex? No homosexual chooses to be so. This is not something that is desired or asked for. It is a condition of being. The other evening on a talk show, one of the participants was an announced homosexual who said that it was a way of being in the world to him, a way in which I relate to other people 
And I'm not certain that all of us understand just how deep our sexuality affects the relationships we have with others. They do. And in their case, it is often a life that is secretive, closeted, and lived in the hope that others will not learn of it because society has not accepted it. I would also like to make the distinction between the constitutional homosexual and the practicing homosexual. If you are a constitutional homosexual, you are one who has a disposition deep within yourself which is out of your control. If you are a practicing homosexual, you have said gay is okay and I'll practice it as I wish. There are different judgments to be made in each case I'm sure you can understand. For we all come here this morning as sinful, having problems in our own life, facing up to temptations that face us. That is common to all of us, whether we call it by one name or another. But the other question is, do you practice it? Do you give in to it? Have you made it part of your life? Or are you seeking some disciplines upon your sinful bent of mind and nature? To the heterosexuals, then, I would say, let us be humble this morning and compassionate, recognizing that we're dealing with a very deep problem of fellow image bearers of our Creator. Men and women who have to live with something that you don't have to live with. And if you are a homosexual here this morning, and I'm sure there are some here because we have them in our congregation and I have talked to some, I would say to you, be morally responsible about what you do with your homosexuality. How you consider it and what you determine ought to be the pattern of your life. Now to begin to evaluate it as Christian people, we turn to the scripture to understand what it means in the light of God's purposes. Turning to the very beginning, God created human beings in two sexes. When he did so, he made an overt decision that it is not good that man should be alone. He would make a helpmeet who would complement the male. And he brought her unto the man, and he said, For this reason the man leaves father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. A new unit is formed for society. Marriage was instituted by God. Jesus documented this in Matthew 19 when he referred back to this very statement in Genesis 2.24. He said, this is the way God meant it to be, male and female, in complementary relationship. And if you read the first two chapters, it says he created the male and female in his image, the two together composing an image of the Creator. That's the way God wanted it from the beginning. There was also to be a certain fidelity between these two who were joined together as one flesh. They were to be true in their life's practice and commitment to one another. And so if you read through this first part of the scripture, you discover that when that commitment was broken, there was serious judgment made. 
In Genesis 12, we read of adultery as a perversion of the marriage relationship. In Genesis 19, we read of incest. In Genesis 34, of rape. And in Genesis 38, of prostitution. All reaching into that relationship and destroying its natural purpose as a result of sin and perversity in the human heart. For God created the male and the female to come together and to be reproductive as they shared their love in a physical sense. They were going to recreate more of the other person to whom they had given their life in that love relationship. That's the natural use of sexual relationships. And so you find the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. You find another perversion referred to. These were men at the gates of Lot's house who wanted and burned with lust toward the men who were in his house, even though the girls were offered to them. And the judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah was in part the perversity of homosexuality and the practice of those towns. The laws were made which were to govern the conduct of Israel. We find the statement very clear in Leviticus 18. It says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And the word for lie is the word for sexual intercourse. It's repeated in Leviticus 20. We read, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Now the question is asked, do you receive all of the laws of the book of Leviticus? No, we do not. Well, which laws do you receive? Why do you choose that law and not another law? Well, there are different kinds of laws. There are ceremonial laws which deal with those activities performed in religious rites in tabernacle and temple which point forward to the coming of the Messiah. The book of Hebrews is rather clear, stating that the law, these laws have been fulfilled. We do not perpetuate them. That toward which they pointed has already become a reality, so we don't need the signs anymore. Then there are also civil laws which have to do with the theocracy, the rule of God over his people. The nation of Israel is a covenant people to whom was promised a Messiah for all the world to receive. This nation, ruled by God, had its civil laws, governmental controls, given in the scriptures. But when the Messiah came, the nation dissolved itself not only as to purpose, but also as to identity as a covenant nation. Now all the believers of God are called the Israel of God, and those civil laws no longer pertain to a governmental entity. And then there are moral laws. Moral laws which govern the conduct of human beings who are created for the purposes and in the image of the Creator. And when we find one of those laws in the Old Testament, we look into the New Testament and we see a balance throughout the Scripture. We're looking for a continuity of rule. So the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, has been repeatedly reaffirmed in the New Testament. Jesus, in fact, heightened it to include lust as well as adultery itself. And so we find in this particular law, this 
perversion, as the Old Testament calls it, an abomination of homosexuality, referred to again in the New Testament. Not only was marriage heightened and the Ten Commandments heightened to a spiritual law, Christ said we should not even lust, let alone perform the act of adultery. But going on through the New Testament, Paul writes in Romans 1, and I trust you read the context of this this text of mine, it has to do with people who forsake the natural use of the body, the natural use of sex, and are using it for unnatural purposes. And as we understand the natural use that was laid out in the beginning as Christ recognized, and now we've turned it, whereby men burn in their lust after other men, and women doing likewise, and Paul makes a very clear judgment upon it in the first chapter of the book of Romans. It was not an uncommon practice at that time. The words that are used are quite clear in the Koine Greek. They refer to those who are practicing homosexuality, just as other writers of that time referred to it. Paul writes of it once more in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 9, where he says that not only will the adulterers, the idolaters, and the immoral persons not enter the kingdom, neither will the homosexuals. And those who are guilty of these sins must all repent and seek the grace of God. Now, if this is a perversity and a sin, and if it's immoral, then I must say that it is rather a unique kind of problem. Most of our sins are things we can deal with. You are tempted or you tempt yourself and you do something. You give in to a passion. You are willing to indulge yourself in a practice. These are overacts. These are thoughts in the mind. You can control these. Now, in talking about homosexuality, we're talking about a constitutional thing, a disposition of one's whole being. What do you do with something you can't help? How would you deal with a sin that is just within you? It's an automatic response to the way you live every day. And you can repent of it, and you can pray about it, and you can say you're sorry for it, but that desire is there. This kind of dispositional thing is not a choice. It's simply in your life. How does that happen to a person? Well, there have been very limited studies to date. And admittedly, what I'm going to say now is tentative, probably subject to review periodically as we learn more about it. But there have been some studies done and there have been some inquiries made trying to track down any similarities and evaluate what has happened. There are approximately 5% of the males of our population and 2.5% of the females who are constitutional homosexuals. By inquiry and tabulation, we discover that there is very likely no genetic or hormonal cause. 
This was said by Dr. Ted Evans of UCLA after he had done a great deal of research in the field. However, Dr. Thomas Chalmers of Detroit says that the results show that a complex set of learning factors can produce homosexuality. What are these learning factors? Dr. Robert Nunn, who is a member of the Chicago Institute of Psychoanalysis, gives us a short sequence that can be helpful on this score. A young child, first of all, discovers his sexuality, but he is told by his parents that he should not establish a sexual identity which is consistent with his physical anatomy. And so very early at the age of two or three, he is deterred from being what he in fact is. Then in grammar school, as a second step, these young people become very interested in those of the opposite sex, and they identify with them. The boy pretending to be a girl, dressing like a girl, acting like a girl, and girls the same way with the boy. And encouraged in that particular practice, it becomes something that settles somehow into the person's subconscious. Then the third step comes later, when someone approaches this child and offers to him a homosexual experience. And this produces within the child a latent excitement that now surfaces. And the child becomes excited in something new, and then he fixes on this kind of interest to the negation of the normal heterosexual interest of others. Now, of course, what we ought to do is become very critical at points one and two. For the psychologist dealt with it not as a sin or a moral problem, he dealt with it simply as a psychopathic problem. And his judgment was that indeed, this is an involuntary condition that results from psychopathology. And therefore, this person needs treatment and needs care, for he's not using himself, herself, in a natural way. Now, I would like to add hastily, because I don't want parents to leave here thinking they are the fault. As far as the tabulations have been completed to date, we have found at least that kind of a potential problem. There probably are a lot of other reasons why this has happened as well, which we are unaware at this point. But certainly I think we ought to share what we know, and hopefully it will be helpful this morning. We are dealing then with something that one has without choosing to have it, and with which he or she must deal as a member of our society, knowing full well, particularly as a Christian, that it's wrong, and knowing by psychological studies that it is a pathological problem. Now, I'm fully aware that the Psychiatric Association has said that this is not a psychopathological problem. The reason they said it, however, after long debate, was to protect those who go for treatment and want help 
but upon the forms there would be this diagnosis handed back to the companies where they work. And in our kind of society where there is so little tolerance of it, they said the only fair thing to do is to remove it from the list and call it something that will be acceptable in the society today. Within their own knowledge, however, and in their own journals and writings, this is not the case. And so no matter how we look at it, we have a problem. As a Christian, we have a moral problem. What is the cure? How do we deal with it? First of all, the prevention, I think, has already been indicated. Parents ought to be very aware of practices of their children. There's no need for alarm, but there certainly is need to recognize what is going on and then to find adequate help in understanding this particular matter. To change the pattern of the child, that's the easiest to do. Cure at a later age is extremely difficult. And so I urge the parents to become aware of at least what we know of this problem today. Secondly, I think the gay person himself, herself, ought to seek a cure. Refuse to stay gay. Face up to this as a problem. And do not seek to say, well, it's happened to me, I'll have to live with it. The gentleman I was on the air with the other evening who expressed himself as a practicing homosexual had never gone for any treatment. He had prayed, he had asked God to change him. But this is only part of the ability that one has in using the facilities that are available to one for health and care. When he did not receive some kind of direct deliverance, then he decided to live with the problem that God apparently wanted him to live with. Now I suggest that we must use the, the tools at hand to achieve our ends. God has given us minds. He's created for us a science known as psychoanalysis. Why not use the best in the science? Look at what happens, share together as human beings, and find, first of all, through prayer and dedication on the vertical level, help, but then go on the horizontal level and seek to contact those who have the ability to counsel and to help. We do this for physical health, and I think we ought to practice this for our well-being at other levels. I would also say to those who are seeking to find help to change one's disposition is extremely difficult. How do you uproot something in the subconscious? How are you born again to a new life sexually? It's something, is it not, akin to the alcoholic who must face up to his alcoholism, and he does so on a daily basis, every morning committing himself to God, every night thanking God for the day, never looking back on accomplishment, never looking ahead with fear, always living today with God. We can learn from this. It's a biblical principle. And I urge you to take your problem to God every day. Ask for his spirit and for deliverance. And pray for the change of heart. 
Thirdly, of course, you will practice your own discipline. Like any heterosexual for whom sexual relationships are out of bounds, you too will be called upon to say it is not right. And how many there are in our society who never marry, who forego because of Christian commitments, some of the things that others enjoy. All of us at some level are disappointed, disciplined, but that is no excuse to try to change God's mind and to indulge ourselves when we know things are wrong. And finally, I would counsel you to maintain your hope. In your position of guilt and of loneliness and possibly of resentment, you must keep a hopeful spirit. God can. His spirit is able. And there must be deep within one soul this optimistic attitude depending on the power of God which is supernatural, able to change. And God in his love and grace will do so. And then for those of us who constitute the church, I think we need to be clear in the first place about where we stand. This is not a human right. This is morally unacceptable. And I think there can be no equivocation, and I think the church ought to say this to our community. Having said that, I think the second thing we need to do is to be understanding and compassionate to those who are gay. They have to know that if they're constitutionally gay, they have a problem like we all have as sinners under God. This is a communion of people who need help. And this is where it's given in love and in consideration. There are two things that are always wed in the Church of Jesus Christ. One is God's justice and the other is God's love. And you cannot have one without the other and be a true representation of God in our troubled world. Let us then reach out. Knowing the possibilities and the options and the purpose of our sexuality under God, let us reach out to help those who need help, to be thankful that there is a community for help, and to seek above all to find God's leading, as he tells us in his word, how to deal with life and its problems. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for our own sexuality. Whatever it may be this morning, we lay it before you and pray that you will purify it, make it meaningful, deliver us from perversity and sin, and help us to be what we ought to be as image bearers. And Lord, give wisdom to all who must deal with this problem and help us to do so.
in humility, in love, and we pray with success through Christ our Lord. Amen.